I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jose Mourinho divides opinion. He's won European titles, multiple Premier Leagues, Premier League as Scudetto and a La Liga in an honours list that boasts 19 major trophies and as many years in management. But his self-confidence, temperament and philosophy have brought detractors. It's nearly a decade since he won the Champions League and five years since he won the league, bringing questions over whether the 57-year-old is now a manager past his prime. He's one of only five managers to have won the European Cup with two different teams and could yet do something unprecedented and win it with a third. Despite coaching last season's Champions League runners-up, a victory with Tottenham would be on par with the level of shock that wins with Porto and Inter were. The question of whether he can do it forms the basis of the cover feature in the new issue of 442 on sale now. I'm Connor Pope, and for today's episode, I'll be talking to Chris Flanagan, author of the feature, about how the Champions League made Mourinho, and Seb Stafford-Bloor, a regular 442 contributor, about his impact at Spurs so far. Chris, you've written this month's cover feature on Tottenham manager Jose Mourinho and his search for a third Champions League trophy. Uh, It's a feat that's only previously been managed by Bob Paisley, Carlo Ancelotti and Zinedine Zidane and never with three different clubs. What made you choose this subject uh, for the feature? Um, Well, uh, with this this month being the return of the Champions League, uh, the start of the knockout stages, we wanted to do a fair amount of Champions League coverage in, in this issue and make it themed in that way. And obviously there's a story around Mourinho coming back, well, coming back to the Premier League with Spurs recently uh, and I was interested in kind of telling the story of his career and look at, basically looking at where, where is Jose Mourinho now um, and I think the best way to do that I felt was was via the Champions League given, say, given the fact that they've got the, the Leipzig game coming up in the last uh, last 16 um, and I think really the Champions League does does tell his story very well in that there's a there's a definite arc now and he, he became a manager exactly 20 years ago um, the first 10 years was all, well, pretty much all highs. Obviously, winning the Champions League with Porto. Then having success with Chelsea. Okay, they didn't quite win it, but, you know, they'd certainly done... He took them to a level where they were seen as being one of the very best teams in Europe. Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, won, won it at Inter. And then from that, that was ex- that was 10 years ago. And from that point on, um, it's obviously gone in a different direction for him and quite quite starkly in a different direction. Um, and it was kind of looking at how how that's happened and where that's got him to today, and and you know, is 
can he can he can he still go on and win that third third Champions League as everyone expected, or, or are those days gone from now? Where, where is where is Jose Mourinho? So you've told the story of Mourinho's his entire career basically by focusing on six hmm. Champions League fixtures, one from each spell at a club that he's managed in the Champions League. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? Is is he a manager that more than most relies on those big game fixtures? Do you think? I think they certainly define him maybe more than a lot of other managers. Um, I mean, the, the fixtures have been... The first one was, was sort of an obvious one to choose, really, was, was the, the Porto against Manchester United game yeah. in, in 2004 when he obviously ran down the touchline after Porto scored the, scored the win in the last few minutes. And that, obviously, from, for people in England, that was when he really came to everyone's consciousness, mm. I think. Um, and I, t- I, t- I think, uh, obviously, a lot of people would have been aware from him from the UEFA yes. Cup final the yeah, year yeah. before against Celtic. And, and there was already a lot of tension between him and Martin O'Neill there. He'd already mm. kind of introduced himself as a, as a real character at that point. Yes, yeah. But yeah, the running down the touchline, I think, really w- was a, is an iconic Champions League moment. Absolutely. It? I mean, I think it was the moment where everyone thought, who's this guy? Yeah. How, how has he got the... the um, the cojones to say to to, <laughs> to, to to do that at Old Trafford, you know, against you know against Alex Ferguson, people just didn't do that, and and he not only did that, obviously then went on to win the trophy that season. It kind of straight away he'd he'd put his name out there as you know one of the most legendary bosses of the modern era, really. And so you've interviewed a few people from throughout his career. What did people have to say about? the Man United game and, and how his approach to it beforehand was? Well, yeah, I mean, we spoke to Vito Baye and, and Carlos Alberto, two of the two, two of the players from, from that Porto team. And it was interesting that, that Vito Baye was saying that um, he remembered when the, when the draw happened in the December beforehand and all, all the squad was, were sat around the TV watching it and they drew Man United and most of the players were thinking, well, that's tricky. But, but <laughs> Mourinho kind of got up and like punched the air or something. And he was like, <laughs> oh, the players were like, oh, that's, that's surprising. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, well, if he, did, if he believes we can beat them, then fine. Well, maybe we can beat them. I think, I think the term, the, the, the phrase that's used was that he was relishing a proper rival, yes, which, yeah, which, yeah. Is, uh, which is fascinating. And I think brings us well on to the second game you chose, which was Chelsea versus Barcelona yes, in yeah, 2005. Yeah. And obviously... Uh, talking about rivalries, his rivalry with Barcelona throughout his career has been a, a fascinating facet of it, hasn't it? Absolutely, and um, yeah, obviously he, he worked with worked for Barcelona as an assistant. I think he always thought that one day he would manage them, um, and obviously that's never happened, and probably probably won't happen for him. Well, pretty certainly won't yeah. happen given given what's happened over <laughs> over the years since then. Um, but yeah, that, that Chelsea Barcelona game was a was an interesting one, that. Yes, Chelsea had reached the semi-finals the year before that under Ranieri, um, but they hadn't really faced a, a top European rival. They'd beaten Arsenal, but obviously that's a domestic rival yep. in, in the quarterfinals. Um, but they hadn't really faced. Well, fe- uh, they hadn't beaten a top European team, yeah. and that was the first time when Chelsea really established themselves as yes, they are one of the best teams in Europe. And in fact, Glenn John- I spoke to Glenn Johnson for this, and he felt that actually that season they were the best team in Europe. Uh, and, and proved that by beating Barcelona. It was such an interesting tie in that, like with Manchester United, where he played mind games with Ferguson after the first leg uh, the year before, he, he played major mind games with Barcelona with Rijkaard in that he made a point of, in the press conference before the first leg at, at Camp Nou, of announcing Barcelona's team, <laughs> getting that spot on, and then announcing Chelsea's team <laughs> and deliberately getting it wrong. And and he he... he 
I, I spoke to Damien Duff about it previously, yeah. and he said that um, Josie had said to him, look, I'm, I'm going to go and do this press conference, because Duff was had a bit of an injury doubt. He was an injury yeah. doubt for the game. I'm going to go and do this press conference. I'm going to announce a team. You're not going to be in it, but don't worry, you're playing. <laughs> Amazing. Um, <laughs> so he announced this team. He announced Good Johnson instead of Duff. Um, and actually, Damien Duff said to me, well, it was so convincing. I wasn't. I sort of wondered, am I actually playing? <laughs> <laughs> but if that was Mourinho's mind games at his absolute best, this fixture also had him at his worst, yes. really, didn't it? Because the, the Anders Frisk and Frank Rijkaard mm. comments afterwards. Tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, there was the incident at half-time in that game where uh, Chelsea lost the game 2-1, but with 10 men, so actually it was a pretty decent result. Um, but there's obviously Mourinho was very unhappy with the referee, and he claimed that he saw Rijkaard speaking to the referee Anders Frisk at half-time. Now, his version of the events was certainly very disputed and, and caused a huge furore. Um, Anders Frisk got death threats from people about it. Uh, he announced his retirement pretty much immediately. UEFA were furious. Rijkaard was furious. And it just caused a massive furore. Um, and then that led to the second leg. 20 minutes in, Barcelona losing 3-0. Um, now, obviously, a lot of that was about Chelsea's tactics, but also you just got to think, well, probably got into Barcelona's heads quite significantly with yeah. that. And that was... In those days when Mourinho was having to make a name for himself, his teams were having to make a name for himself, that was a way of doing it. It was to get into their heads psychologically. He had good players as well, but he used both things together. And that psychological element really came into the third game you've chosen here. Inter versus Barcelona mm. in 2010. Obviously, again, it's Barcelona, but it's also the kind of start of that Mourinho-Guardiola yeah. rivalry, which obviously has been a dominant force mm. for most of the 2010s. So uh, tell us a little bit about why you chose this game. I'm sure it'll be one that lots of people are familiar with already. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, that in terms of a match, you know, even considering there wasn't an English club involved in it for me that was one of the most memorable matches in Champions League history that second leg and that it was just the most remarkable back to, back to the wall performance they had 10 men for an hour they were playing Barcelona yeah. <laughs> away and you think well they've got no chance at that point and they, but Mourinho just drilled them so well and it, for him I think it was like you say it was it was personal at that point because after after Chelsea had beaten Barcelona after he then left Chelsea the Barcelona job came up when Rijkaard left he felt that he should have got that job. Um, he spoke to Barcelona, had a lot of conversation with them. I think he felt confident he was going to get it. And obviously they chose Pep Guardiola, the B-team boss. And he, he he told them, I think you've made a mistake there. I don't think Guardiola's ready for this job. Now, obviously, that that, <laughs> that statement seems doesn't seem quite right these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he, it, it was personal. He felt he should have got that job. Yeah. So when there's a semi-final, obviously he wants to win the Champions League anyway, but when it's against Barcelona, he really wanted to win that game. And and he felt, I think, as well, didn't he, that or certainly they didn't give him the job because they didn't feel he was enough playing in that Barcelona way, mm. this kind of idea of yeah. space and passing and attacking football that had been put forward by Johan Cruyff. So when it comes to this game, he doesn't he no longer wants to be seen to play anything like the Barcelona no. way as, as a way of showing that it's wrong. Yeah, no, it was, in, it was interesting... Um, the first leg was an interesting one as well in that I've seen kind of him talking through it tactically and stuff. It's fascinating in terms of how, how he managed it and how he knew that Inter could not take on Barcelona at their own game in, in that 
And they were helped and it was the the ice uh, sorry, the ash cloud um, from the, the biggest, volcano. The biggest tragedy, of course, of the ash cloud being Robert Lewandowski's inability to sign for Sam Alonis' Blackburn Absolutely, Rovers at the time. Yes, yes. But, but please do carry on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that meant Barcelona had to travel to Milan by coach, which yeah. obviously not ideal preparation. But still, Mourinho's tactical plan in that game was was just perfect. He knew he knew that, like I say, they, they had to play differently. I think the quote he used, I think, at, at that time was, well, if, if, if the opposition have a Ferrari and I have some small car, I have to puncture their tyres or put, put sugar in their petrol tanks. So that, that was probably t- said it all. And he said, basically, they created sort of like a, a he said, I think he used the word Gabia. It was like a, a jail for, mm. for Messi in it. Every player that, that played in an area where Messi could arrive on that pitch knew that as soon as he was in that area, they had to be on him. And then he, he, he drilled into the players that the way we're going to beat Barcelona is transitions. As soon as we get that ball, we attack like lightning with five, six players. And that's what they did. They won 3-1. That obviously then allowed them to go to Camp Nou and defend if they needed to. And obviously yeah. they needed to. Uh, I Just quickly on this, because it was a conversation that we, we'd had a little bit in the office. Do you think that... I'd always thought that Porto, winning the Champions League with Porto, was really the pinnacle of his career in terms of mm. what an incredible achievement it was. But someone else in the office was making the point that actually winning it with Inter, he had a much tougher run of fixtures. He had to beat Bayern in the final. He had to beat Barcelona before that. Whereas Porto had that Manchester United game, but other, otherwise they only had to beat Lyon and Monaco uh, on the way to victory. So actually, are these two achievements more comparable comparable than perhaps the way we think. Well, it's interesting that uh, Mourinho himself has actually said that his biggest achievement was winning it with Inter rather than winning it with Porto, which, like you say, would seem surprising given that Porto, yeah. the team, the Porto team he took over was so far from winning the Champions League. And Inter, all right, Inter hadn't, hadn't won it for a long time, but they, you know, at least seen as an established elite-level club at that point. But, but no, the, I think they, they beat Chelsea. They, he went back to Chelsea in the last 16. CSKA Moscow maybe wasn't too bad, but that semi-final against Barcelona and then Bayern Munich. Yes, yeah, so it's a very very difficult run. And people did not expect Inter to win that title um, because you know that, that was an ageing Inter team. Okay, they'd won a few, they'd won some Serie A titles before that. But he said, he, I, mean, I think he spoke about, he felt there was a psychological wall with Inter in the Champions League that they couldn't get past the this last sixteen, the last other quarterfinals, even when they were winning the league every year. Yeah. So they had to break that, and then once they broke that that season, you know, they went on to win it. And it, it was interesting that we spoke to Lucio, and he was saying that he he arrived that season, um, and Mourinho liked him, but one thing he didn't like was that he used to used to kind of dribble forward, which he always used to do when he was at Leverkusen with Brazil, and Mourinho basically told him stop doing that. <laughs> and and he said, you know, I, I, he said I'm so grateful that Mourinho told me that because I got into the uh, the, t- the FIFA Team of the Year that year. I, I played brilliantly, and he turned him into a pure defender. And and that was so evident that night at Camp Nou when him and Walter Samuel at centre back were just brilliant. I mean, that, like I say, as one of the best defensive performances, and from two centre backs, that's one of the best ones I've ever seen. Yeah. So the next game is fast forward to 2013 now. It's Real Madrid versus Borussia Dortmund. This is the first tie that you've picked that Mm. Jose Mourinho lost in the Champions League. Uh, But it's also the introduction of Jurgen Klopp. Um, Did you pick this tie partly because Klopp 
even at that time as part of the same wave perhaps of jo mm. as uh, Pep Guardiola of a new philosophy around football uh, well pick, pick that game for two reasons really well, one it was it was interesting to kind of read uh, about what Florentino Perez said before that game uh, where he basically said well because Mourinho had had some issues with, with the dressing room and that was well known by that point yeah. that, you know some of the players weren't entirely happy with him and Perez had said well look it, it's not it's not easy managing a team of superstars like Real Madrid but you know Dortmund, we know they, they you know they're a team of children managed by a child's coach. It's a lot easier. <laughs> Which, <laughs> when you consider that child's coach was Jurgen Klopp, yeah, yeah. seems a bit of a daft thing to say with hindsight. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, he has a bit of a childish demeanour about. Yeah, I, 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 I sort of know where he's coming from. In yeah. that it was a young team and there's a different way of managing it, but he's still rather um, not very complimentary of Klopp. But the second reason we chose it uh, that game was was basically. That was the end of him at Real Madrid. That was the first time in his career, other than maybe Benfica at the very start, well, that was uh, a situation over a contract between him and the, mm. the chairman, where, where he left the club and did not achieve the, the one thing that he went there to achieve. Right. At Porto, he won the Champions League, obviously. Chelsea won the league. Uh, at Inter, he won the Champions League. At Real Madrid, they, Real Madrid brought him in to win the Champions League, being no doubt about that. They hadn't won it for a long time. They were, they were searching for La Decima. Um, in fact, Perez brought him in because he was so delighted and relieved that Inter had beaten Barcelona and stopped Barcelona going to win the Champions League at the Bernabeu, mm, which, was, course, which yeah. was their worst nightmare. Yeah. So they pretty much did the deal as soon as that semi-final happened. Um, so yeah, that the focus was he was to go there and win the Champions League. Now they got to the semi-final in all his three seasons there. They won the league in his second season. Then it unraveled in the league in the third season. And then that Dortmund semi-final was was the end, basically. As yeah. soon as that semi-final went wrong, uh, Lewandowski obviously scored scored four goals that night. Um, that was the end. And in fact, I think he said after the after one of the two legs in that that he sort of started making hints after after that game mm. that he quite fancied going back to Chelsea. He didn't he didn't say it explicitly, but it was yeah. pretty clear from what he was saying that was what he meant. So the next tie that you've uh, chosen is with Chelsea, but actually going back to Madrid. Mm. It's the game against Atletico Madrid in 2014. Again, this is him going out of the Champions mm. League. Um, what I kind of had forgotten about this was that the second leg came three days after that incredible Liverpool-Chelsea game with the famous Steven Gerrard slip mm. where Chelsea won um, and ended Liverpool's title hopes, uh, which I think in the middle of all of this is a fascinating yeah. uh, little bit of colour. But why, why, why this fixture? Um, well, 2014 uh, is actually the last time that Jose Mourinho won a knockout tie in the Champions League, which is incredible to think, really. Wow, so yeah, six yeah. years ago now. They've beaten PSG in the quarterfinals. That's the, still his, his last knockout win. Then they go to the semi-finals. It's his first season at Chelsea. Mm -hmm. It looks like, okay... Bear in mind, he went. He, his first spell at Chelsea, he did everything apart from win the Champions League. Then when he when he, when he wasn't there, they won the Champions League. Yeah, so yeah. suddenly he kind of thinks, I need to win the Champions League at Chelsea now, because if Di Matteo could do it, I need to do it as well. Hmm. Um, but obviously in that semi-final again, it unravelled. They drew nil-nil away. Mourinho was happy with that. And then the second leg, it was all going fine. They were one nil up, and then. Hazard gets caught out at the back post from across. He gets caught napping. Uh, Juan Fran runs in behind him, sets up the goal, the away goal, and Atletico go on to win 3-1. And then in, in the press conference after that game, Mourinho pretty much throws Hazard under the bus yeah. and says, you know, 
he's not ready to sacrifice himself for the team to go that extra yard to defend for his team. Now, okay, Chelsea won the league the year after that and Hazard played well, but that that was a telling moment as well in his in his overall time at Chelsea. In that when yeah. things started going wrong again, the criticism of Hazard came back. His relationship with Hazard deteriorated. Mm. Ha, you know, and then it caused all sorts of problems in the dressing room. As Ramirez, we speak to Ramirez in this, yeah. and he basically says that, well, naturally, in a dressing room, you've got players who are unhappy that they're not playing. When someone like Hazard, who's a star player, is also unhappy with a manager, and those people start talking to each other mm. about snowballs, and that's what happened at Chelsea, and it, Mourinho never recovered. I was going to say, Hazard must have been quite a young player mm. at the time, and it's not really a case of, God, Eden Hazard, whatever became of him, <laughs> is it? Um, so that brings us on to the last game that you've chosen here. Um, Manchester United versus Sevilla in 2018. It was an embarrassing knockout for United, wasn't it? Mm. And it was what felt like a very winnable tie. Yeah. Um, did this possibly sum up you know, Mourinho's time? Was it the beginning of the end, really, for him at United? Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, even though they finished second in the league that year, that moment was the moment where it's, it started going pretty wrong. I, mm. think. I mean, they just signed Alexis Sanchez and that had unsettled Paul Pogba a bit and there was already by that February, there was issues between Mourinho and Pogba. Interestingly, Mourinho did opted not to start with Pogba for either of those two legs, which is a big statement really in, in what effectively could be seen as your biggest games of the season. He was on the bench for both games. Yeah. They drew nil-nil away. Again, Mourinho was happy with that. Fans were less happy with that, I guess, because people thought, well, this is severe. Why haven't we gone there and attacked them? Yeah, We're better than them. And they basically showed very little intent to go and attack at, at all. And then once that happens, like with Chelsea against Atletico, if you draw nil-nil away, if you concede that away goal at home, you're in trouble. And that's what happened. Basically, the second leg, they just... For whatever reason, it didn't turn up. It was a very flat performance. You could tell that something just wasn't quite right. And obviously that manifested itself over the next few months, leading to his departure. And and what was interesting was that, you know, at a moment when obviously the United fans were very upset about losing to Sevilla, he chose to then have a press conference two or three days after that, um, going on about, you know, football heritage and how United hadn't done anything in the Champions League for years. Mm. And okay, what he was saying was factually correct, but it, it's probably probably wasn't the right moment to say that in terms of his relationship with United fans and um, it didn't go down well and, and things started to unravel at United. And it's interesting that, you know, we speak about relationships with, between the players and obviously Martial was another one where the relationship probably wasn't the best. Um, when Chelsea beat Barcelona back in 2005, there's an interesting quote from Desmond Morris who's a human behaviour expert who just happened to I don't know why he was asked about it at the time, <laughs> but there's a quote out there basically saying, because um, Mourinho jumped on John Terry's back when uh, to, at the final whistle to celebrate yeah, yeah. Chelsea beating Barcelona. He said, well, to me that shows that he's not a father figure to the play. He's actually like an elder brother. And I guess the problem with that is that when, you, when you're now 57, can you be that elder brother to the players? The age gap is so much bigger. You can be, that far, you can be a father figure to players, like Desmond Morris was saying, like Wenger or, or Ferguson. That that can go on for years and years longer. Can you be an elder brother to players now? Can you relate to them in quite the same way? And is is that part of the reason why his relationships with some players aren't quite as strong as they used to be? I don't know. It was an interesting point, I thought, that I hadn't, I hadn't considered before. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that brings us on excellently to the next part of the podcast. Next, I'll be speaking to Seb Stafford-Bloor about Mourinho and Spurs and looking ahead to that Champions League tie 
with RB Leipzig. Chris, thank you very much. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. If you're enjoying this episode, you'll love the new 442 on sale now. As well as an in-depth profile of Jose Mourinho, we have interviews with the likes of Andrea Iniesta, Benjamin Mendy, Matteo Kovacic, and Rio Ferdinand. Features on Sadio Mane, football's myths, the Coup de France, and Europe's biggest losers, as well as much, much more. Subscribe now to get 13 issues a year delivered straight to your door for less than £3.80 a mag. Just head to myfavouritemagazines.co.uk forward slash fftpod20 or follow the links in the notes below. So Seb, how do Tottenham fans feel about Jose Mourinho as manager at the moment? I think it's mixed, Connor. I think um, there's a little bit of trepidation about what the future might hold because um, essentially the club have appointed someone who is um, as ideologically detached from their own past as it was probably possible to find. Um, you know, Jose Mourinho's success, um, at least in his sort of in his second act as manager, has depended on heavy spending um, and on kind of recruiting the sort of the the off the peg players that. Tottenham have typically shied away from at least the sort of the the, the game's very best off the peg players. Mm. Um, so at the moment, I think um, I think there's a little bit of um, intrigue and there's some novelty to it because I think it's uh, there's something in Congress about seeing Jose Mourinho manage the Tottenham team, which is a little bit fascinating. <laughs> but I, I think there's also I think most fans would probably accept that there's a there's a slight sense of dread that eventually there's going to be a fracture potentially because um, philosophically. There is so much ground between him and ultimately Daniel Levy. And because uh, there is ultimately always a fracture wherever he goes, no matter how ideologically kind of aligned to that club. Yeah, absolutely. This is the, this is the pattern. Now, I think um, obviously um, between you and I, we've published a few things about Jose Mourinho. We, we, we did something the night he was appointed and yeah. when Pochettino left. And there's this strange expectation that, that he should he should almost have a clean slate. Mm. And I understand that as a mentality. If you change job, you get a new reputation. Like you be, we both know what that's like. But at the same time, when you have established a pattern of behaviour over like a decade and a half, it's a little bit unrealistic not to expect people to to be informed by that reputation. To think that you know, come year three, um, 
the whole stadium is going to be ablaze and and all kinds of fires are going to be set you know and, and it's going to be all sorts of chaos i think that's um and i think that factors into a lot of people's thinking mm-hmm. at the moment and so where does spurs need to improve tactically at the moment and are those kind of areas that you know you would possibly associate with Mourinho anyway i think i think the one that jumps out at the moment is the pressing at the top of the formation mm. um in a strange way the the injury to harry kane has kind of helped that a little bit because he's um, in on last Sunday's game against Manchester City, he started Lucas Morris, Son Young Min, and uh, Stephen Bergwijn, mm. and those are you know three excellent, outstanding technical footballers, but they're also three excellent athletes as well. Um, so there's a little bit more motion, there's a little bit more pressure on on a um, on a on a team's defensive phases, um, on Man City's defensive phases, but they've been very passive, um, and it's very unnerving given the sort of the the state the, the defense is currently in, which is. They're, they're fragile. I think that's fair. <laughs> like there's work to do at both fullback positions. Um, Toby Alderweireld has been stable, but I'd say that David Sanchez has suffered a huge loss of form over the last year. Mm. So if you're playing passive, if you're playing passively with that kind of weakness at your heart, that's a problem. So I'd like to see them be a bit more aggressive without the ball. Um, I think that's 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 job A for him. I think he's been in post a couple of months now. It actually feels a lot less than that. Yeah, I feel, but. Yeah. Are we starting to get a sense of a plan? Are we starting to understand what Jose Mourinho Tottenham will look like, or or is it still kind of is it still very much just a Pochettino Tottenham that Mourinho is inexplicably managing? It's a hard question to answer, Connor. I, I, I what I say is not a Pochettino team anymore. It's definitely not. I mean, right. the faces are familiar, um, but the nature of the mood of the way they play is so different that it's obviously not. I wouldn't describe it as. Um, as being typically Mourinho-esque because it, it's it's a little bit too charitable. It's not it's not stingy. It has certain characteristics, like it can be negative and you know a bit cynical sometimes. And and there are sensory um, sort of uh, re- revelations occurring, you know, on, in the technical area. Mourinho cackling and in, enjoying other sides <laughs> of his fortune. And and um, you know, we we were talking before we started recording about um, him celebrating Son Heung-min's goal by running thirty yards to give him some tactical instructions. <laughs> <laughs> With ten minutes left to go, um, so I don't know. I mean, I um, I haven't seen anything yet, which I think um, this is this is going to be a pattern that's built on. I I think it's a mood at the moment. Mm. I think um, I think what Tottenham are likely to be is going to start emerging in the summer when they um, when they move away from some of their kind of patchwork solutions. At the moment, there's a lot of like things like Jaffet Tanganga playing fullback, mm. like he's probably a centre half. He's done ever so well, and he's 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 a real you know, um, you know he seems like a, a lovely lovely guy as well. But um, he is he's a central defender or, or a right back at a stretch. So once these have gone, I think then Mourinho has a sort of license to to approach things with a little bit more direction rather than just a kind of let's let's make the best of a very uh, you know, of a bad situation. Mm. We talked a little bit there about um, Spurs' 2-0 win over City last weekend. Um, obviously, it was against Pep Guardiola that brought in this whole other area of intrigue to it. But it also just felt like a classic Mourinho victory. I think Tottenham had two shots on target and <laughs> and scored two goals. And City, I think, had 24 attempts or something like that. But was it a tactical success for, for Jose? No. <laughs> This, so, feels, this feels like it's been a big part of the conversation. Was like, was this his plan all along? But Connor, it's like, <laughs> it's like this is like a reflex, Connor. It's like a, it's kind of anytime Mourinho wins a game of football, it's a tactical masterclass. Yeah, yeah. There is no other manager on the face of the earth who, who that applies to. Yeah. Um, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was. Um, it was Mourinho-ish in spirit because it was. 
it depended on digging in and mm. effort and concentration and um the nature of it the kind of the um the the rope dope aspect suited his reputation um on another day city three up at half time and you know I, I i actually on the sort of the the day we were recording this we, we we did an article on like the differences between this Tottenham side and they're kind of they're they're little incidentals which no one would notice in in, uh, in unless they, they're missing so how hard are players working to kind of retrieve a what looks like a lost situation how much how much effort are they trying to put into uh, distracting a forward with a goal scoring opportunity? Now, if you look back at sort of, if you look back at the detail of that Man City game and particularly at some of the chances they lost, so uh, the chances they missed, so the 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 Aguero miss in the second half, in the first half, um, the Gundogan miss in the second, you're seeing things which shouldn't ordinarily happen to Man City, and the responsibility for that lies with them. But in each instance, you're also seeing like a hassling, harrowing tackle or a or a lunge and. A couple of weeks ago, these things weren't happening. And I think that's partly because there was so much baggage in the Tottenham team. There was so much, there was a sense that uh, because you had sort of, you know, Christian Eriksen there, Danny Rose there, you had players that weren't committed to the cause. So really, what was the point in kind of embracing this new era entirely until those players were gone? Because ultimately, they weren't committed and eventually they would let people down. Um, so it's interesting. It's a little bit tenuous. And, mm. you know, by the time this comes out, maybe I'll, that'll look completely foolish and the article <laughs> will be entirely redundant. But it, it's interesting. It's like, um, yeah, it's like it, it's like trying to, you know, when, when two tennis players are having a rally, it's like, you know, one player's losing it, but he makes his opponent play one extra shot because there's a propensity that something might go wrong. Shouldn't, yeah. but if it does, then you're kind of rewarded for your effort. And I feel like that's what Tottenham were against Man City. And um, yeah, it was interesting. So what do you think has been the best performance under Mourinho so far? Oof. Uh, I, I don't think there's been a, good performance i there are aspects of games i liked mm. uh the first half against man uh, west ham it's first mm. performance um the last 20 minutes against liverpool um, i was going to say the liverpool one does come up <sighs> see i think this is a really hard hard one to judge because is it are is a team defending well if it just sits behind the ball and hopes for the best <laughs> i'd argue not because that's okay if you're if you're if you're if you're newcastle mm. or if you're norwich i think if you're tottenham and you're you're signing fifty million pound players. I think that's a little bit too much to ask for fans to to appreciate that. But I, I, you know, the the comeback against Olympiacos was encouraging. I think the clean sheet against Watford was great. But I think we're still waiting for that ninety minute performance. I mm. where where they where they don't just ride their luck. Where they're actually a um, a protagonist within a game. I'm, we're still really waiting for that. So the Champions League is back later this month. Tottenham have got RB Leipzig. Um, Leipzig are having a great season. They're second in the Bundesliga. In fact, they've got Bayern Munich this weekend, so they could go top if they beat them. Uh, how big a challenge is this for Tottenham? Massive. I also, it, it, you'd be hard pressed to find a team that Spurs were less well matched against, right? Okay. Um, because I, I think, particularly, like you think of Leipzig, you think of Werner. Um, you know, I, I know it doesn't begin and end with him, but Werner, Werner, Werner's pacey. There's a lot there. <laughs> well, there's, there's a lot there, but also like you, you just you think, right? What is the what is the single attribute that that defense struggles with at the moment? Pace, mm. really difficult. Also being pressed because um, Alderweireld remains a, a very classy centre half, but there are big question marks around him. Mm. And you know, there's um, Sergio Aurier. If he doesn't give a penalty away at some point during those two legs, I'll be stunned. Yeah. Uh, we, can, we can have a follow up for this podcast. Just that, <laughs> that can be an entire episode of itself. But also, you think like, okay, so um, you know, we, we've spoken about uh, Tanganga and how impressive he's been. But do you put a player 
um, who is um, that inexperienced and um, who hasn't faced that range of challenges into that kind of game, that's really mm. difficult. And then you factor in players like Sabitzer and, and it's, it's, it's tough. It's really, really hard. I, I, I'd say Leipzig are deservedly favourites. Well, look forward to it, Seb. Thank you very much. No, pleasure, Connor. Thanks to Chris and Seb for joining me today. Don't forget the new issue, Jose versus the World, is on sale now. You can save money by subscribing to the mag at myfavoritemagazines.co.uk forward slash fftpod20. The music you've heard is by Hal Griff and is available on iTunes and Spotify, just like this podcast. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 